Hey everyone, welcome to You'll Probably Agree. Uh, wow, it's been a long year of movies. And uh, you know, people keep asking me, what's your favorite films of the year? What's your favorite films of the year? And I, I keep telling them, you, you got to wait and find out. <laughs> but now I think I'm ready to reveal those. And Ian Simmons from Kicking the Seat is here with me to talk about his favorite films of 2023. Ian, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to come up with a list of favorite films of 2023, because as you mentioned, it's been a very strange year. Um, yeah. But I've got some to discuss whether or not they stand the test of time or even the next month. Who knows? But uh, we'll we'll get into it. Yeah, it's funny when you mention if it's going to be that long or not, because the film on number I, I'll just start here. The film on number 10 on my list, I thought it would stay in my head longer than it really did. And that is uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, that movie, uh, its if you don't know what it's about, it's about the Osage Nation over in, I think it's like Oklahoma or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's in Oklahoma in the 1930s. And it's about how the natives of that land, the Native Americans, they have a portion of oil that they uh, basically keep for themselves and they keep the money for that. So what this William King Hale guy does, played by Robert De Niro, is he, along with a few other white people, start killing off people in that nation to keep the money for themselves and inherit it. And then they end up opening up a whole investigation that goes to Washington regarding these killings and... That and basically, it's kind of like the birth of the FBI through this whole investigation that they have. Now, the movie doesn't. Now, here's what makes the movie work: is that it doesn't take place through the FBI's perspective. They don't come into the story until like two hours plus in, or something like that. What the story is about is about Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and how he falls in love with his wife Molly, or we think he's in love with her, but really he's just using her for her money. And I guess what made this movie stand out for one is it's three and a half hours, but it doesn't feel like that. The There's so much going in the plot, it keeps your attention. But also, to that same detriment, it does feel its length when I go back and look at it. Because there are portions of the film that just keep dragging, people keep dying, and... You just kind of want it to catch up to the main story and wrap it up soon. And it doesn't really do that. So for that, it didn't really stick around in my mind for that long. But yeah, at number 10, I changed it, was Killers of the Flower Moon. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, and I did a, a podcast about it. And I, you know, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, I mean, it's... <clears throat> It's Scorsese, and that's one of the, I think, my gripes about it is every time Scorsese comes out with a movie, it's automatically going to get critical acclaim and mm. Oscar consideration. Um, and, you know, I didn't care for The Irishman. I, He's getting, like, really big into these historical epics, and they just feel like, quote-unquote, stories that need to be told rather than movies that need to be made. Mm. Um, and on during the conversation I had, the, the panel, I think it was with Don Shanahan, who had read the book, 
that that Killers of the Flower Moon was based on, I kept asking questions about problems I had with the movie, like why didn't they go into this, or what happened to this character, or wouldn't it be interesting if we learned more about this and this and this aspect of history? And he's like, oh, that's all in the book. I'm like, then, you know, I just want to read the book then because the the film felt very even at three and a half hours, it felt very Cliff's notesy. It felt like they were mm-hmm. spending way too much time on the stuff that didn't really matter. So, I mean, it looks great. Directing is solid. Performances are, are fine all the way around. But there was nothing that particularly moved me. I don't feel like I learned anything. I, mm-hmm. I came away asking more questions than I did at the beginning. And that's kind of rough for three and a half hours. I think that's why it didn't stick out to me for that long, because it's so focused on this marriage where we know they're not in love. They keep saying in the behind the scenes stuff, DiCaprio and Scorsese's like, oh, these two are in love. And it's about how that relationship is strained because of, you know, Ernest's greed and all that. I'm like, he's not in love with her. He just wanted her for the oil money. So who cares? You know, and that's the thing is like, this does not... You know, DiCaprio is as fine a performance, I think, as he gives in. Maybe this comes down to the screenplay. I felt like his character needed to be obviously more dubious or tricked in the I don't know. I couldn't tell. He's kept like waffling. Is he in love? Is he just in it for the money? He comes out as being far more vicious than I think we establish him as being in the beginning. He's sort of a naive character when we meet him. But at the end, he's like participating in acts that we had seen alluded to earlier in the movie, but it turns out he was behind them. I'm like, where did this viciousness come from? Who is mm-hmm. this character? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause I, there, there's that one, there's like a clip on live where they're talking about how he shot someone in the back of the head, but he was supposed to do it in the front. And I'm like, yeah, when, when did he all of a sudden was able, when was he able to mentally just kill civilians? Like I know he served in the war and he killed for that, but then like, when did he become like a gangster? Well, that's the other thing aspect? is he, he didn't kill in the war because it's established early on that he was working, I think, in the kitchen uh, mm. or in some sort of support capacity because they make it clear that he's not he's not a warrior. He's not a fighter because um, I think he's kind of, you know, if you want to put it sort of sort of certain parlance, he's kind of simple. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it was just kind of a, a mess and a miss. For yeah. Me. yeah. Yeah. I, I can understand that. Again, as a movie, I got to see again because. I just know, like, I saw it, but then it was so many months ago. Not much has stuck with me since the time I saw it, you know. And I don't know, like, for me, it it was definitely one of the standouts of the year. But is it Scorsese's best? No. And he is making these, like, I thought The Irishman, that movie was three and a half hours where they kind of just repeated the same scene again and again, where there's that sequence where they're having that whole dinner celebration for Jimmy Hoffa. And everyone's telling Hoffa he's going to calm down with what he's saying. And they do it about like five times within the same scene. <laughs> and it gets it just it just gets over the top for me. But well, uh, I, I commend you for remembering anything about the Irishman because I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't blame you there, you know, <laughs> but yeah, let's see. And then for number nine, I don't know if you saw this one, but poor things. This has to be one of Yorgos Lathamos's most screwed up films and that's actually saying a lot because he makes a lot of them but this one is incredible in its production design and attention to detail where the world now it takes place in i think glasgow i'm not sure i could be saying it wrong it could be glasgow glasgow i'm not sure but it takes place there and the production of that town 
looks incredible. It kind of looks like something you'd see from like uh, Disney World. And it looks that way on purpose because Bella, the main character, who is this Frankenstein monster brought back to life by Dr. Uh, Godwin, or as they call him, God in the film, because they're very subtle with what they're saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they, they end up... Uh, he he brings this this monster to life or this this young woman's body to life with the brain of a young child and the way she sees the world is like everyone's hypocritical you know people are just beasts that want to have sex because there's sex in this film and there's a lot of it like a lot a lot sometimes too much but too much <laughs> yeah like i think there's like 20 solid minutes where she's just prostituting herself to other people just so she could discover herself sexually because in a way this is a story about someone who has like an accelerated sort of mental growth spurt where their body's already there but the mind is still developing and okay. it's fascinating to see her mind develop. It's fascinating to see how she kind of calls out the hypocrisy of society. But at the same time, you know, she's doing crazy stuff herself. But that's just because she's kind of been given the gift of life. But with that gift, she kind of just sees how the lives of others are are very uh, full of themselves. And yeah, it's a it's a fascinating film. It's it's a great comedy. The humor is there. Like in the beginning, when Bella is starting to learn how to develop her brain, there's like corpses that are on the table that Doctor Godwin is experimenting with, and she's taking a knife and stabbing the eyes out of the corpses or playing with their penises. It's insane. The movie goes from one crazy moment to the next, and it doesn't really let you go. So. You know, if you think you know how crazy this film's going to get, it, it just be ready. Now, this is a guy who did, you know, Killing of the Sacred Deer, and he also did The the Lobster. So if you've seen Lathamos' other films, you should be prepared. You should know kind of like what you're getting into here. And it's not going to be a typical Victorian-era period piece. I have not... You see, did he do Dogtooth? Was that his first... Okay, mm -hmm. I saw Dogtooth probably 13 years ago whenever it came out. And I remember being really freaked out by it and loving it. I have not caught up with any of his other movies, including Poor Thing, but that's just because of my schedule. Um, I do want to see this movie. I You are not the first person to highly recommend it and say how crazy it is. So interest sufficiently peaked. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a movie where you kind of have to see it to really talk about it because it's just so bizarre. You kind of want to know what each thing means in the film. It's like, okay, why was Bella doing this or that and you, you got to see it to really understand it but poor things number nine on my list highly recommended i mean the film is amazing it uses oh wait here we go yeah i mean the fight the title is a little too fixated on the sexual angle but that's okay with me you know the performances all around are great emma stone she gives an oscar worthy portrayal of an evolving frankenstein monster Mark Ruffalo is hilarious as kind of like this goofy, petulant man. Like his accent sounds off in it, but I think it was kind of like it's meant to sound off in a way because the guy is just basically a walking representation of what humanity is to Bella. And then mm -hmm. Willem Dafoe plays a role where he's doing crazy things, but he's not necessarily insane himself. And his makeup makes his uh, role all the more memorable because he... 
he just has like this scarred up face. We don't know when or why or how it happened, but it's there. And it's it's just something that you keep wanting to look at. But yeah, number nine is uh, poor things. And then number eight, I have, have you seen Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Yes. Yes, yeah. I have. That, that's, uh, that's on my list as well. Oh, good. I thought for a second, I'm like, oh God, I'm, I'm going too easy. I'm putting in a comic book film. But this one is a groundbreaking achievement in, an, in animation. It, it's stunning to look at. It's a comic book film and an anime brought to life with such color. Your eyeballs are going to be popping out of your head. It uses the multiverse not only to bring back old things, which it does to a certain degree. We see sort of like flashbacks of the amazing Spider-Man uh, with Andrew Garfield, where he's holding Gwen Stacy's body, also yet again played by Emma Stone. And, you know, we kind of do see some other things that I don't want to reveal, but you're like, oh, wow, they actually put that in there. But it introduces new things as well. Like when they have that whole Spider-Man sort of planet that they're on, and it's just a bunch of people when the, there's like 100, 200 Spider-Man living there, and there are different kinds of variations. It's stunning. And the movie uses animation to its advantage to create a thing that is like the closest thing we have ever seen. It's like a moving comic book. And it's full of surprises. There's a cliffhanger ending that makes me anxious to see the next one, which will probably not come out in another two or three years. And most animated films are short. They clock in an hour and a half because they're difficult to make. This movie is actually the longest animated film in North America to ever be made, clocking in at two hours and 20 minutes, which, I mean, for an animation, it takes like forever just to move like a single frame. And this is a two hour and 20 minute film on it. It's just crazy. Uh, it's exciting to hell to look at. It's brimming with detail and it has a heart to it. Like most Spider-Man films do. Cause just like, just like how Spider-Man No Way Home was about Spider-Man saving villains from doing villainous things. This one's Spider-Man saving his family. So yeah, highly recommended. Amazing film. what do you think of it? I loved it. And you know, what's, and I think this came out on the, the round table I did on this, you know, back in June or whatever it was. I don't think I realized that the people who made this movie did not make the original uh, Spider-Man uh, into the Spider-Verse, which is amazing because you watch these, you watch these two movies and you figure there's got to be continuity between them, not just because they're sequels, but because they look stylistically very of a piece it doesn't look like oh we just switched filmmakers you mm -hmm. know franchise and this is what you're going to get it looks like they took the style of the original into the spider-verse and just amped it up to 11 without losing the heart without losing the the big story i was i was skeptical because to me into the spider-verse is that the is that the first one uh, uh into I, the I, I get a mix yeah yeah this i get them all across. mixed up yeah right into the spider-verse was one of my top films of the year it came out i thought it was perfect i thought it was the best spider-man film ever made and i thought i don't need to see any more so when i found out that they were making a sequel i'm like i i don't want to see it i don't care they it, they don't need to matrix this where you have a, yeah. an unexpected success and all of a sudden we need more content yeah um however i was pleasantly surprised to see that by the end of across the spider-verse when they have that cliffhanger ending i was angry because i'm like to your point i have to wait probably two to three years to find out how this resolves and i cannot wait it's uh it's another 
wonderful film with you know even richer characters going to you know fleshing out details from the original film and really bringing a lot of depth that i mean all of the live action comic book movies we've had this year have had multiple problems of one form or another they could have taken a lesson from this this animated feature and to your point this long cartoon is not just it'd be an achievement if it just looked like wish or elemental or the mario brothers movie but this has such a variety of styles going on and kind of like glitchy you know multiple multimedia influenced elements to it that you just sit back and wonder it took me out of the movie several times but in a good way i'm thinking how the hell did they pull this off it must it feels like a movie that took 25 years to make and yet it only took only took a few years to make because the first one just you know feel like it just came out yeah yeah that's what's so amazing about it is like it's length and they were able to pull this off within like two or three years which is mind-blowing i remember i went to the screening and i just kind of asked out of curiosity how long is the movie to go two hours and 20 minutes and i went what <laughs> are you serious but yeah. they did it it was amazing but uh again amazing for amazing spider-man but uh, I mean, the next one on my list is number seven is The Zone of Interest, which, ooh, that was a disturbing uh, movie. And it's uh, disturbing in the way where it's it's not graphically violent. It's everything that's suggested in the violence because it's a story. I've, he I've oh, heard sorry. about this. No, I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but no, I have heard about this movie. I have a screener for it that I have not caught up on. But just knowing the premise, I described the premise to my wife. Yeah. And she's she I can't remember her exact phrasing, but it was like, why would anyone make that movie? And I thought, well, point taken, but it sounds incredible. So, yeah, please give the synopsis. This is on my not my top 10, but it's on my like top five of movies I still need to watch from this year. <laughs> no, sorry. Well, the movie's about this guy named Rudolf Haas, and he is the commandant to Auschwitz. But across the street from Auschwitz is a dream home of his, like this very nice kind of two-story home that he's raising his family in. And to him, it's like the the uh, kind of dream house sort of setting that he wants to put everyone in. And the movie doesn't focus on the violence that's going on in Auschwitz. For like you could hear it very faintly in the background, and I think this movie should get nominated. If it doesn't get nominated for best picture in the foreign language category, which I don't see how that would not happen, uh, but it should get nominated in the sound department because there's so many scenes where you could just barely faintly hear the screaming of soldiers in the background, and even like the screaming of people dying, but it's just so subtle you could barely make it out. To, to Rudolph and his family, it's like another annoying occurrence. Like they're trying to sleep and you just hear from the distance like, ah, ah, and they're just ignoring it. And to them, it's like, it's like the most sick thing because you're just seeing people having a regular everyday life. You know, they're getting the pool ready. They're raking the leaves. They're, you know, they're just interacting with each other. They're making up the house and they're making all their money through the blood of others. There's a particularly chilling sequence in the beginning or near the beginning where Rudolph is talking to some of his COs and they're telling him how to control the ovens. 
and they're acting like it's just another everyday occurrence. They're like, okay, well, you put it off to this degree. Don't have it go here because then you overdo it. And you just watch it. You're like, God, this is just absolutely horrifying. It's a reminder of how easily a nation can fall under fascism. It's about how the wealthy always do inhumane things. And it's weird because earlier this year, we were so we were celebrating the CEOs of Nike with air while paying no attention to the kids that are dying in the factories, making the air Jordans, you know, and then we have movies glorifying Apple. Now, I'm not saying these guys are Nazis, but I'm just saying <laughs> that it's similar in a way where you have people who are rich, who are ignoring the blood of the others that are on their hands in order to make themselves successful. And in a way, that's kind of what the zone of interest is saying. This is about Rudolph, who is very successful, but of course, it's off the death of all the Jews that he's wiping out. So, yeah, zone of interest. It was number seven. And wow, I already got to seven. Look at that, huh? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely fascinating picture and disturbing in a way that you wouldn't expect. But yeah. Uh, so, and then the, the one I had at number six after that is dream scenario with, uh, Nicolas Cage. Now this is probably one of the best comedies I've seen in years. It's, it's a pretty deep film. It's basically, have you seen dream scenario? No. And I'll explain why that's another one I've got a screener for. And I, at one point, I think it was because I had heard you raving about it. I'm like, Oh, I got to check this out. But then I got distracted with other things. Uh, Nicolas Cage is an interesting actor interesting that he's a very talented actor but he'll basically be in anything and i i know diehard nicholas cage fans who will swear by just about anything he does the problem is he is in a lot of crap and yeah. sometimes he is crap in that crap and so <laughs> to the point now where i'm like every time i hear about nicholas cage movie when i hear people say but it's really good and he's so good in it i'm like well you've said that about the last 20 nicolas cage films you recommended regardless of their actual quality mm. so when i hear nicolas cage is in a new movie it's an instant red flag and unfortunately this one which by all accounts might be it uh i just haven't made my way around to it yet right well he said it's one of the best movies he's made in years and i could kind of believe have you seen pig by any chance? Yes, and that was another one. I was I was pleasantly surprised. It, but it took me a while to come around to it because I'm like, oh come on, whoa, he's really he's really trying. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this one he's kind of over the top and goofy because he's kind of playing this uh, middle class dad who's just you know this dorky guy, and he show and what happens in the movie is he shows up at everyone's dream. So. And at first, he's not doing anything in the dream. So everybody loves the guy, you know? Like, I think if you watch the trailer, there's like a sequence where there's a whole hurricane happening and the study hall within the school is falling apart. Mm -hmm. And he's just walking over, looking at this young girl like nothing's happened. Also, in the beginning of the film, he's raking leaves and his daughter starts levitating higher and higher from the ground. And when she's asking her dad for help, he doesn't do anything. But then when he becomes active in their dreams, he's like murdering people. He's like raping them. He becomes a nightmare. And then, yeah. And then when that happens, all his fame that he gets, it turns on him. And now all of a sudden people are like tarring and feathering him. And it becomes sort of a story about how we build figures up only to knock them down. You know, and it's also about social media and how he becomes famous through there. 
and how basically, <laughs> excuse me, we are a society of people that don't, that really just want to have famous figures just so we could tear them down so we can feel better about ourselves. And that's kind of what they did with Nicolas Cage's character here. And yeah, Cage is real goofy in it. You know, he's like, hi, I'm just a dorky dad. <laughs> We're going to drink more today. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. But it's, you're not you're you you had me and then you're like not selling me on it because I'm thinking about I've seen this mode in other films and it's just an instant turnoff because I know he's a fantastic actor but I also know that people are so thrilled to have him on a movie that they're like yeah just do whatever you want I don't need to direct you or rein you in mm. you're Nicolas Cage right I I I thought he was enjoyable in it I thought he was real likable and he is funny in it. But I could see that argument. I could see that point because Nicolas Cage kind of, he's had some good movies. He's had Mandy. He's had Pig. He's had this. So he's pretty good and stuff. I don't know if he's a phenomenal actor, but he's an okay actor. And he's like over the course of his filmography. And I think this, this could be an entire episode. Um, but you, you look back at especially his earlier roles he is unhinged, but he's unhinged in the interesting way that he's a young actor trying to find his voice and do something new. And it's kind of funny and experimental. But then after 40 years, it's like, you know, the experiments kind of run its course. Yeah. Yeah. And I could see that. I could see that. But here it's 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 uh, it's a little goofy, I'll admit, but it works for the film, you know, okay. because he's supposed to be the everyday kind of guy in it. And he kind of plays it up that way. Now, he's played those roles before, but he was kind of boring in them. Like, I thought he was kind of boring in The Weatherman and other stuff. But here's here's the thing. And again, I haven't seen the movie, so I can't attest yeah. to it. But when you say, on the one hand, he's really playing it up and being Nicolas Cage. But on the other hand, he's playing the everyman. The everyman is not hamming it up. The everyman is boring, as he mm -hmm. was in The Weatherman. Now, maybe that's not cinematic. But if you're trying to say, oh, he just plays an everyman, but he's also being all wacky and strange. I'm like, well, that, there's a disconnect there. <laughs> right, right. He's not too wacky in it. You know, okay. he's not too over the top. But I, but I but I can understand that. Yeah, like he is kind of like, hey, how you doing? How's it going? You know, kind of like. He's Ned Flanders. I... <laughs> yeah, he's Ned Flanders. He's kind of like Ned Flanders in a way. And yeah, it's a, it's to me, it wasn't too silly. I thought it matched the character. But. Like I, I could see definitely how that's like, oh, but it's another Nicolas Cage movie. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? But anyways, moving on from dream scenario at number five is the holdovers, which this one took me by surprise. I, I just thought it would be kind of like decent or something like that. But no, this is this is a return. Now, if you don't know who Alexander Payne is, audience, Alexander Payne is the guy who did Sideways. He did about Schmidt. He did Nebraska. He did Election. So he does a lot of movies about quirky characters who are very, like, some are a little too over the top and silly, but a lot of them are very believable and grounded yeah. and down to earth. And that's what makes the holdovers work so well, because it's a story about a kid who's in this high school prep school and He's basically kind of a troublemaker. His parents are already talking about sending him to military, excuse me, sending him to military school if he isn't uh, as successful as he should be. Uh, and this is at the height of the Vietnam War, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So basically, like this kid has to get his shit together and start moving. And what happens is over the course of the holidays, he has to stay at that prep school because he has nowhere else to go. And he has this demanding history teacher played by Paul Giamatti, who basically ends up uh, instructing these kids during this break. And I have to say the cast is phenomenal. Paul Giamatti, he's great. He does that kind. He kind of plays that usual condescending, rude role where he's always judging other people. Uh, Dominic Sessa, this is like his first film, I think. He's great. It's this rebellious kid who also has this, uh, you know, internal problem with his family that ends up getting externalized. And then you got Divine Joy Rudolph who plays a mother who lost her son and is now working over the holidays without anyone. So basically these characters come together and they form a new family and they, and it's, and it's actually a really touching film. It's a return to basics for Alexander Payne because he did downsizing, which was sort of like this big budget film with a lot of special effects. But I think in this budget, it got lost in everything and this movie keeps things very grounded. It mostly just takes place in this little prep school. And just like occasionally, kind of like if you see one flew over the cuckoo's nest, like when they go out in the boat and go fishing, it kind of has like the same effect where it's like, oh, they go out once in a while to buy Christmas trees. And they, it brings everyone closer together. And it's a great character piece about uh, characters who might not like each other, but eventually do. It's kind of a familiar tale. But they're so well-written and so well-adapted that it keeps your attention throughout the whole movie. And when it reaches its final moments, there's a great winning moment from Paul Giamatti that is one of my favorite moments this year in film that I don't want to give away. But yeah, The Holdovers, absolute recommendation. Have you seen The Holdovers? I have. Um, That was one of those movies where you know, I'm in a voting body with the Chicago Film Critics Association, so I didn't want to let this one go. Uh, in term, I want to make sure I watched it before I cast my vote, and I'm glad I did, because yeah, this is a phenomenal movie. I'm a big Alexander Payne fan. I mm-hmm. mostly love what he's done. I didn't see Downsizing because I just got this feeling. I'm like, this mm-hmm. isn't like his other stuff. I don't want to see this from him. Yeah, um, maybe that's unfair, but you know. Well, I had um, the same thing, so. <laughs> But I loved Election, Nebraska. I mean, this movie is kind of like, like scent of a woman meets Wonder Boys. You know, in in a you know almost like kind of like maybe a separate piece, uh, the the novel. Uh, it's it's very literary. It's very literate. It's very smart. These kinds of movies we don't really see anymore, and mm. it's touching. All the performances are just wonderful and kind of unexpected. Even though you might think it's going to be a certain type of movie it is but it's also more it's as if alexander payne is aware of the types of films that it would be compared to and said i'm not going to make that movie i'm going to wear that skin but there's going to be some real you know some heftier sturdier bones underneath yeah if that to butcher a metaphor so yeah this is this is great top performances all around i can't believe this is you know dominic sessa's sessa's breakout role along with uh divine divine joy randolph uh you know yeah, it's it feels like a comfy holiday blanket you want to wrap yourself in and make yeah. a weird Christmas Christmas tradition. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's like an unconventional Christmas movie, kind of like how Batman Returns is, you know, yeah. where where it's like it's not cheery and delightful and gets you in a good mood, but it gets you you know really fascinated and honed in on these characters. You know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you were saying Bones, I couldn't help but think of the sequence when uh, Dominic was, yeah, he he was being rebellious towards Paul Giamatti, and he ends up. And his, I, I'm like, what's Paul Giamatti's character's name in the film? Oh, yeah, it's Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, he jumps on the trampoline and then breaks his arm. <laughs> and I'm like, that's pure Alexander Payne right there. In most movies, a character would just be an asshole and be jumping around. But Payne's like, no, more realistically, he'd probably break his arm. And that's what he does. He makes very believable characters in believable settings. Well, the other thing is like... As you mentioned, Alexander Payne also directed Sideways. And I feel like Paul Giamatti is playing a different version of the same character in both movies. Both are very yeah. highly educated, socially awkward. It's just that the character in this movie li almost literally didn't leave his school that he went to high school with. He's teaching there now, but he and he doesn't like to go outside of the school grounds. Um, his character in Sideways is a bit more well-traveled from what I remember, but yeah, you could pair these movies together and you know get completely different things out of the characters, but also use them as a study of how to, you know, have an actor explore different aspects of the same kind of like conscious shadow, if that's the right term. I don't know, probably not, but it's great. Yeah, yeah, highly recommended from both of us. It seems so. Mm -hmm. Then at number four is Past Lives. I don't know if you've seen Past Lives, but. This, I have not. That's that's another one highly recommended by a lot of people, and it's on my list to catch up with. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful sort of, it's kind of like a poem, that movie, you know? It's about these two people who grew up in Korea together, who, like, at 12 years old, were separated because uh, Nora, played by Greta Lee, she ends up being, uh, she ends up immigrating to the United States with her family, and ha and she has to leave Jung Hae Sung, played by T.O. Yu, uh, alone without his best friend. And 12 years later, they reconnect through the magic of the Internet and Facebook and Zoom. Uh, and then they end up or actually they use Skype in it. That was one thing that kind of threw me off in the movie. I'm like, who still uses Skype? But yeah, <laughs> was they it a period piece to take place like six years ago <laughs> I, I don't know maybe <laughs> but i remember that they they end up getting they they do get together after 12 years but it's only online and then 12 years later after that they don't talk for a while and they and they hook up once more and the movie is based on a korean verb it's called inyon and basically it means when two strangers even just brush clothes and crossing the street they've shared some kind of other life together at some other time. So it's about this girl who has a connection, a childhood connection to this guy. And I think they're both in love with each other, but because she's married, she can't get together with him. So there's this, there's this romance between the two that is never really engaged with, you know, they never kiss or anything like that. But they they had just had that connection that is absolutely beautiful. And it's a film that by the end of it, you might be heartbroken. And 
it stands out as one of the best of the year for me. Uh, oh. yeah. Damn. But I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to reconsider my list because you you keep throwing these movies out. Like, I why didn't I see that? I've got <laughs> I've got some bangers on my list, but yeah, maybe I mean, I'll probably have to come up with like a top fifteen or something based on based on this conversation alone. At number three, I had the uh, the Iron Claw, which I'm not sure uh, if you've seen this movie or heard about it, but. I've heard about it. I have not seen it. Yeah, it's about the Von Erich family. And for anyone who doesn't know who they are, they were this family of wrestlers who competed for the NWA fight, NWA belts. And I guess I can get into spoilers here. I couldn't get into spoilers in my review when I wanted to. And I was very vague in it. I'm like, this family faces tragedy, but they come out on top and blah, 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 blah. But what happens to them is that they basically... They die off like one of them commits suicide. The other one gets like in a car accident and his and it takes his leg. So that impacts him from being able to be a wrestler. And it's kind of the typical film about the very strict, overpowering father, you know, trying to make his kids into something that he could not be. And the movie doesn't play the father like he's a villain, which is nice because a lot of movies do that. A lot of movies will have the abusive father and, you know, he'll he'll just be nothing but a jerk to his kids, which to a certain degree, this guy is he jests about which one is his favorite. And he keeps telling them, like, you know, you got to compete for the belt and nothing else matters. Like even as like the family members are dying off, he's telling them that they have to be strong and that they can't show weakness and showing weaknesses to cry. So no crying is allowed, which doesn't allow them to grieve for like their deceased uh uh you know for the for the deceased sub siblings mm -hmm. um but the the movie's fascinating because once it gets into the meat of the uh story because at first you watch it you think okay this is an inspirational sports film you know because it kind of comes off that way you see these guys competing for the belt they're winning you know left and right and things are going really well for them but once they start dying off it's kind of like the Kennedys. It's like, Jesus Christ, which one of them is not going to die? <laughs> and when it gets into that part of the story, it's invigorating and thrilling because you just think when things can't get worse, they keep cascading downwards. But despite all that, the main character, uh, Eric, uh, Vaughn, or yeah, I think it's. Actually, you got to pull up his the actual main character's name, but played by Zach, Zach Efron. We'll just call him Zach Efron for now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he he ends up basically still competing and and living the life he wants to. But the whole kind of theme of the film is that he just wants to have a nice life to give to his wife, Pam, and his family. So then they can retire from this profession because in a way they're their family is kind of cursed and, mm. you know, it's basically about someone trying to live through and break through that curse. And yeah, it's a fascinating piece. Zach Efron, he gives an amazing performance. He really bulked up for that role. You believe him as Kevin Von Erich in the movie. He like basically, I don't know what he put his body through, but it was basically through like a Zack Snyder sort of level of training. I'm guessing. And, you know, he expresses emotions like never he never overacts or underacts. He does it just right. 
And yeah, he's phenomenal in the film. Like he might get an Oscar nomination for his role. I'm not sure, which I never thought I'd use those two words in a sentence, Zac Efron and Oscar nomination, but it could happen. But yeah, that was my number three. Uh, well, I, I mean, uh, Zach, Zach Efron, I, I haven't seen the movie, but it is, that's another that's on my list of movies I haven't seen that I really want to, uh, you know, that are kind of Oscar baity and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I've always liked Zach Efron as an actor, you know, I think he got lumped in with the Disney crew for those high school musical mm. movies, which I still haven't seen. Um, but I've always liked him, uh, even yeah. in, you know, cheeseball stuff like 17 again, or, you know, a great comedy, I think, like Neighbors, which I watched, I think, this past year. I revisited it since the first time I saw it. He was jacked in that movie. Mm. Um, you know, there's a scene, I think, at the end where he's, like, posing as a body model outside a store. I'm like, geez, man, what's going on? So I guess he's even more yeah. hulked out in this one, along with Jeremy Allen White uh, yeah. from The Bear got pretty pretty ripped for it. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm curious about this one. Plus, it, Lily James, I think, plays the the wife of the girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and she's great too. I I love her. Yeah, it's a it's an all around pretty solid cast. I mean, the movie doesn't feel too Oscar baity, but it is conventional, but not like in the bad kind of way. Like the conventionality works to the film's advantage because you think it's going to be going towards one direction, but then it goes in another direction, and once it goes there that's when it really hooks your attention. And that's, I guess that's when it gets into the Oscar stuff. Cause you know, everyone's dying and people are, you know, you got one guy acting with a fake leg and stuff like that. So you got, you got the whole like handicapped angle you can add into that, but. Well, sure. And, and when I said that, I mean, it's just, it's a, you know, it's based on a true story. It's a drama, big name talent swinging for the fences coming out at the end of the year. That's, that's all I meant by it. Uh, oh yeah. You know, yeah it just, it feels like a movie that was designed to be in that lane. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oscar bait can be kind of a pejorative or it can just be a descriptor, a descriptor or so. Right. Well, I mean, that's okay. I mean, if you really want to talk about Oscar bait, that's my number two film, which is Maestro. <laughs> uh, Cause you know, this is a film about Leonard Bernstein, which I have to admit, this is embarrassing. I didn't know who Leonard Bernstein was or Bernstein, Bernstein, Bernstein. I'm not sure. Uh, I'll go with Bernstein because of the Aria, um, the REM song. Um, he gets name checked <laughs> and it's the end of the world as we know it. Oh, okay. I think they said Bernstein in a bunch of interviews. So, okay. Then, then yeah. I blame Michael Stipe for my ignorance. Yeah. This is, it's all his fault, but no, th- <laughs> this movie, this movie is, it's kind of like, this is what cinema is in a lot of ways. You know, it's slow cinema. A lot of the scenes that happen, there's like long conversations, but the camera doesn't cut it stays in one angle. There's a real particularly uh, good scene that they even have the clip of online. Like, really, if you want to go into this movie fresh, don't watch any clips or anything because they kind of give away, like, everything that's in the film, which isn't much, like, to say a few things. Like, it's not, like, a real, like, plot-heavy sort of film. It's more of a character study, and it's about this guy who was madly in love with his wife, uh, but... He, uh, his life, his wife, Felicia, I don't have her full name. I'd have to pull it up, but it was about how Leonard Bernstein and Felicia, it's really about their love and their marriage and how Bernstein was going out with other men and sleeping with them and almost kind of open about it. There's a scene where he's sitting next to someone else in the opera and he's holding hands with them right next to Felicia. And you're going, oh man, okay. You're not even going to keep it a secret, but 
for some reason she tolerates it. She never like really directly confronts him about it. And in the way the movie's stronger for that because it doesn't go for the atypical, what are you doing out at night when you're doing concerts and I'm alone? Like they don't have anything like that in the movie. It's much more subtle. And well, it's yes, I'm I, sorry. Let me let me ask you about that because it's sort of a problem I have with a lot of modern movies that are kind of biopics mm -hmm. that they try and they try and ex subvert expectations by as you say not doing the thing that ex is expected mm -hmm. however mm -hmm. i find that that's going against in a lot of cases reality so for mm. example if my husband were going out with other men or yeah. anyone besides me you're damn right i'd be like i'm sitting here alone and you're out doing whatever did it feel unrealistic? Were you at any point sitting there going, why isn't she saying anything? Or does the movie give evidence as to why that might be the case? I or is think... it just artsy because that's what, you know, that's what everyone expects. We're going to do something different, man. Well, I think it was because she figured going into that marriage that that was already part of the deal. And Ooh. yeah, like they don't really implicate that, but you kind of you kind of get that that might be it, because this was during a time when being gay was really, you know, not looked up to. You know, we're talking about like the 1950s or the 60s. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think she didn't want to like ruin his life. And that's why she didn't directly confront him about it. The thing that she does confront him about is that she says his music comes from a place of hate instead of love. And that deeply offends him. And of course, there's the uh, scene that everyone talks about. It's within a cathedral and he's conducting this huge ensemble piece. And Bradley Cooper actually conducted that piece. They actually did it in one take. And it was a six and a half minute piece and it took him about five, five and a half years to learn how to do it. And just for that kind of commitment, you know, that's absolutely commendable. And the film is, yeah, it's artsy cinema, but it's a good kind of artsy cinema. You know, you, you feel like you get to know a person and you're not just watching a love letter towards him. Although in many ways, a movie is a love letter. And as someone who doesn't know who Leonard Bernstein is and was so engrossed by the film, I think it speaks volumes to it. Yeah, I'm. This is a movie I haven't seen that I'm not that interested in, frankly. Um, yeah. I know there's a lot of conversation about Bradley Cooper and the nose, um, and all this. Oh yeah, that thing, weird yeah. business. Like, can he play? You know, a a Jewish composer. I'm like, yeah, because he's an actor. Um, yeah. <laughs> my question is, like, okay, your note about commitment. Five and a half years to train to be able to do essentially one major scene. Mm -hmm. You know, they have editors, uh, they have body doubles that, you know, honestly, it's not that I feel weird saying this because it's his craft and everything. But I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't know that people are talking about this movie. I don't know that it's going to have much of an impression like awards time or whatever maybe it's just art for the art's sake but if he's sitting there thinking like this is gonna be my big my big moment then i just feel bad like five and a half years huh or well something if, that people might even fast forward through i don't know i i will say if they used a body double and they like cgi'd bradley cooper's face on him or something like that 
or just I'm not use... even I'm not even saying that. I'm saying like you're conducting, you know, you're right, doing right. this. You can do a lot. I mean, I don't think J.K. Simmons, when he was making uh, Whiplash, was you know training for six years or whatever to be able to do that. Right, but it, it sh- but when you see that scene, it shows like you could tell he's really doing it, and it adds to that authenticity. And just makes it all the more visceral when you watch it. I think if they just cut to the orchestra a lot and like went to the back of his head or if he was doing gestures that didn't quite match what they were doing, you could kind of tell. And I'm not like I I don't have any background in, you know, conducting, but I, it's like I could tell like if certain notes were off or if he wasn't doing it right and they were cheating. And I, I mean, for that scene, it, it did earn a start for me, I have to admit but I mean, when you get sure. towards the end, when Felicia Montenegro is starting to develop cancer and, you know, they're, they're supporting her throughout that, like that's, it's emotional stuff. And yeah, I get it. It's Oscar Beatty. Oh, someone's dying of cancer. <laughs> Give him the gold. But no, I Carrie Mulligan's great in everything she's in, you know, yeah. and this is, this is just another role she can add to her. I mean, I, I'll say, I think her performance was more impressive than Bradley Cooper's performance. Because Bradley Cooper's kind of doing like an impersonation of Leonard Bernstein, where he's kind of speaking in a nasally sort of way. And it, and it just sounds a little off throughout the film. And mm. yeah, th- that was like one thing that kind of made me go, all right, can he just like use his regular voice instead of trying to impersonate the guy? Because it doesn't sound exact. like it sounds a little like him, but not exactly like him. But I mean, the, the guy is like directing, like he's literally giving like hand signals, like when he's out of the frame to the camera to move somewhere else. And he's like hugging his wife and stuff like that, which you don't see that in the film, his hands out of the frame, but all that stuff put together is real impressive. And I mean, for the two films Bradley Cooper has done, he really shows that he's kind of a unique talent. He clearly likes music. I mean, he did a star is born, which was a musically driven film. And this is another musically driven film. And uh, yeah, I, I really, I love the star is born. Um, and I, but again, kind of, and I, all of the things I'm saying about Maestro are coming from a place of complete ignorance. I'll admit it because I haven't seen it. But from what you're describing, it sounds kind of like a Star is Born story, whereas the feature, you know, Cooper directed and starred, but the his female lead seems to be taking all the, the spotlight because Lady Gaga was phenomenal in that mm-hmm. movie. And Bradley Cooper was, you know, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think I think he's a better act uh, director than he is an actor. You know, like his acting is okay, it's passable, but it's never like, oh my god, he was phenomenal in it. You know, he'll probably get an Oscar nomination just for the conducting scene. But again, that that's actually learning a skill more than it is acting, you know. Mm. But I mean, out outside of that, it was it it was a it's a it's a slow film, but the good kind of slow, and it's moving and it got me curious about someone i usually when i watch biopics i don't get curious about other people or i don't care but this <laughs> this one this one had me it going because i see a lot of movies about oh here's an artist and here's their work and here's why their work is so great i'm like that's great i could just watch or listen to their work instead of yeah. like watching people describe it to me for two hours in a film or a documentary uh but yeah i mean maestro was my number two and then coming at number one is another uh, biopic, and that is Oppenheimer. Uh, the movie that I'll admit, Christopher Nolan has his flaws. His movies don't, they're not exactly about sympathetic figures. You know, they're kind of about these, 
very stoic men who are brilliant, who go off and either go on heists or they're creating the A-bomb. Uh, <laughs> but this movie is just like a montage made from heaven. It moves at such a pace. It holds your attention throughout and there, and it moves at such a rate. You're going to miss certain details of the plot, but you're meant to see it again so you can catch more details. That's kind of the idea of a Christopher Nolan movie. It's sort of like putting a piece of, he doesn't make movies, he makes puzzles. And you got to kind of put them together and make sense of them that way. But I mean, it was a cinematic delight that the, the editing, the cinematography, and oh, Ludwig van Gorsen's music is amazing. Especially the Can You Hear the Music montage is incredible where it's going from one tempo to keeps going faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, the movie isn't easy to digest. It makes, you know, it kind of makes you not know where Oppenheimer stood on releasing the bomb. Although in a way it could make, I, you could say that he was for it all along. Cause there is that scene when he enters the, uh, he enters, you know, his base camp where they're in Los Alamos and there's a meeting after Hitler has killed himself, you know, and, and Germany has surrendered. He's like, yes, Germany surrendered, but Japan's still out there. And, you know, we're going to use this bomb to end all wars. And I'm just thinking, yeah, but you don't really have to bomb Japan. Like they're a small, tiny little country, you know, compared to Germany, which was taking over the whole world. And they were on the verge of surrendering and you still decided to do that. So when you have that in there. You kind of, you kind of, you, you kind of go, okay, this guy, he's morally ambiguous. You don't know what his moral scruples really are. And in a way, I guess to some people, you may not care to other people. They did. I did kind of care about what he thought. I mean, especially in the scene with Harry Truman, which I'll admit was the way Gary Oldman played him was kind of silly. You know, he kind of put on this big, like, Oh, I'm from wherever I'm from kind of accent. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you think anyone Hiroshima or Nagasaki gives a shit about who built the bomb? Like, but it did. But when he says, I have blood on my hands to him, he's clearly indicating that, you know, he feels guilty about what he did. But then again, he felt really, really bad for killing a lot of people. Boo hoo. But it's just a fascinating piece throughout. Like, I've seen it about three times, and each time I get something a little new. So, I mean, it was that it was a mix of genres because Christopher Nolan doesn't like to just play one genre. I mean, the movie's part biopic. It's a war film. It's a heist film where he's assembling the crew to build sort of the uh, Los Alamos team. And it's a psychological study. And I mean, so for all of its intricate layers, it's a brilliant film about science and the dangers of humanity and basically how we can all nuke each other. Because we could just create that one chain reaction that will end the world. I'm gonna guess you you saw it and you're just kind of like eh on the film. I really don't like Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing: for all the everything that you mentioned about Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker, I mean, I he's one of my favorite filmmakers. I I respect him, um, and I really do like slash love a lot of the movies that I've seen of his. Mm -hmm. But Oppenheimer, I feel like. I know about as much about the man coming out of the movie as I get did going in, mm -hmm. which is nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a critical flaw in the first 10 minutes of the film that if it had been excised, might have gone a little bit further in 
my enjoyment or my access to this guy. There's a scene early on where he's in college and he gets embarrassed by one of his professors in science class or whatever. And so he poisons, I think it's an apple. Yeah, he puts and, potassium cyanide in it. Right. And then they go off to, uh, before he can give it to his professor, they go off to see this lecture by, uh, I can't remember the scientist, but it's it's Kenneth Branagh, who's a big yeah. deal. Uh, afterwards, Branagh, the professor, and Oppenheimer are in an empty classroom together talking. Branagh reaches for the apple, and Oppenheimer basically grabs it back and prevents him from being killed. Yeah. It's an interesting scene. However, uh, at no point do we find out you know, that that's a that's a record scratch. That's a slamming on the brakes moment. I'm like, wait, this college kid almost murdered his professor. Yeah. And by extent, this visiting scientist kind of by mistake. I need to know about him. I need to know what led to that. What's the psychological profile? Is mm. he, you know, is he a crazed maniac? Did the government seek him out because of this? Because they knew that they needed someone who would have no conscience, no problem of murdering a lot of people potentially. But it's never addressed again. Mm. Um, his weird relationship with that communist chick—I uh, don't—I don't know what oh, that yeah, was Gene all about. Tetlock, yeah, yeah. Like no one seemed, no one that he was involved with seemed to care that he was sleeping around with anybody else. I didn't buy him as a guy who would like be able to land the kind of <laughs> action that he did socially. Just like all of these things keep popping up, and I'm like, when you said it's a it's a montage, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's based on a rather large book that I imagine could be hard to adapt into a film. But I I almost wish it had been, it it would have been better if it was about like one of the other researchers at Los Alamos who is forced to work under this mysterious, strange, enigmatic guy, rather than having it hmm. be about the strange, enigmatic guy and learning nothing about him. Because right. I didn't feel bad for him. I didn't understand how what he was doing related to anything that was going on with the war. It's just, you know, it's a mystery. And that's fine unless you're going to ask me to sit through three hours of it. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I, I I can understand. There were there there's aspects of his life they could have actually explored that went into his guilt towards the A-bomb. Because eventually he actually ended up giving lectures against the usage of nuclear weapons. And they never put that in the film. I mean, the guy died because he was smoking so many cigarettes. He used cigarettes basically for nutrition. And they, <laughs> they, uh, there's a rumor that like they, he could have gotten some radiation poisoning and some other people from there as well. And they could have put that in the film. They didn't put that in there. Uh, it was much more about him losing his security clearance, which I mean, that's supposed to be a big deal, but you don't understand how it's that big of a deal. Because it's like, what, he can't develop bombs anymore? He can just go off and teach somewhere. But right. I and, and there's the whole, and there's the Robert Downey Jr. stuff, which I think was, you know, really fascinating and interesting, but it felt like it was part of a separate movie. And, mm. you know, he goes from being, oh, you think this is kind of a sympathetic character at the beginning, at least what I remember of it, to being an absolute villain by the end who's undone um, by his own hubris. That's kind of interesting. But again, I'm like, what does this have to do really with Oppenheimer or us? Right. Um, it just seemed really unfocused. Now, I've only seen it the one time, but and I, I feel like, yes, maybe I do need to see it again. But 
I've got a big backlog of movies to watch, not even just from this year, but from like, you know, the entire history of cinema. So what's my impetus to go back and watch frickin' Oppenheimer? (laughs) Right, right. Well, I mean, again, it it didn't work for you. I I liked how it was morally ambiguous and you don't know where he stood on it because you could you could have added that later in the film, but I don't think that was the kind of movie they're making. They're kind of making the movie about Oppenheimer and his determination to stop war with a bomb, but how it backfired and ended up just creating more war. Uh, if they put right. in those later aspects of his life, it would have probably worked a little better, but it wasn't there. But I didn't feel like it entirely needed it. The, the thing is, call it something else then. Yeah. The movie is called Oppenheimer. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to invite the audience to learn about the man who built the bomb that killed you know, not only, you know, tens of thousands of people or, or whatever, but also basically sent the world spiraling onto the brink of destruction uh, and, you know, the mutually assured destruction, a concept that had never before been possible in human history. And this guy started it. I, I again, I know nothing of substance about him really now. And I've seen the movie that was allegedly about his life. Yeah. I'm not trying to take away from your enjoyment of it or anything. It's just that, yeah, when I think about Oppenheimer, I don't think about Oppenheimer. Right, right. You're thinking more about the bomb and like the politics behind it. And then like it kind of became the Lewis Strauss show, show at a certain point because like of all the impressive performances in the movie, like the two that stands out is Emily Blunt and Robert Downey Jr. Uh, yeah. Killian Murphy is just kind of like, okay. He's just mostly whispering a lot and, you know, acting, just kind of looking sad most of the time. And that's basically like the, his whole character. They don't get real deep into his psychology, which I mean, maybe that was the point of the film. But I would have liked to have seen those sequences where he's speaking against the usage of nuclear weapons, you know, and actually sort of lamenting over his past rather than just uh you know, still doing his job and us not knowing like, well, what does he feel about it? It's like, well, he feels mixed about it. He, you know, he could have, he could have not bombed the Japanese, but he did it anyways, because I think to him is like, no matter what we do, if we make bombs, someone else will make it. So we got to be the first to use it. Uh, the two keys, I think you, you take out that scene from the college and you rename the movie Los Alamos and it gets a little bit higher in my estimation. Okay. (laughs) Understandable. So what were your uh, top 10 films? Well, we've talked about a few of them. Uh, I'm going to go to the cheat sheet. And I admit that in the 24 hours since we spoke, I didn't go back and put these in any kind of order. So we're just going to fly by the seat of our old pants. And I think there's 10 on here. It might be 11. So yeah, just let's just go with it. Um, Let's see. Uh, we agreed on Spider-Man Across the Mm -hmm. Spider-Verse. We also really liked, what was the other one? The Holdovers. Uh, That was another one. Yeah, Yeah. Holdovers. I thought there was another one that we agreed on, but I can't remember. I'm not going to hold things up. Uh, Uh, Past Lives, Dream Scenario. Uh, Hang on, I got to go through my cheat sheet too. I got my notes here. (laughs) Killers of the Flower Moon, which, yeah, that, that ended up becoming my number 10. It, right. Yeah. We talked about that and that, that I, I did see that one, but I didn't, I didn't care for it. Yeah. I, I liked it, but it's, it's not like Scorsese's best. He could have trimmed just like the Irishman a good 30 minutes and you wouldn't have lost much. 
And you could have seen a little more of the FBI investigation because you can only watch Leonardo DiCaprio just being a piece of shit for so long until you're like, okay, what else is there more to this movie? But still, yeah. for, for a three and a half hour film, whizzes by and certainly uh, says a lot about, you know, wealthy, rich white people and what they like to do to indigenous folks from other lands. I mean, that's the really easy way to talk about it, but yeah. I mean, fine. <laughs> um, all right. So let's see. What do we have here? I'm going to go with some, you know, these are going to be some head scratchers, but I, I just got to say, restate. I haven't seen everything. Uh, the movies that are on my list, I don't consider to be the pinnacle of cinema by any stretch of the imagination, especially because as often happens i catch up on everything i miss sometime around january sometimes february so it could be some real bangers that i'm leaving on the table so these are just movies that surprised me that uh, i enjoyed that uh, i got something out of it and sometimes you know you know i didn't expect much so mm -hmm. i'm gonna start off with here's when i lose everybody mike sorry uh -oh. for having folks drop um the super mario brothers movie oh wow <laughs> yes yeah, I'll put that at number 10. Why not? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you do have the big Mario question mark behind you. That's so. from that screening. Let's see. I got like and lined up. I'm always so bad at this. Yeah, it's right there. Right there. Um, yeah, it, it, this is, I, you know, with so many IPs and animated features, uh, they are, I don't know, they're, they're just not good they don't really get they don't really hook you as far as like making the audience remember what they loved about the property that's being adapted especially in terms of video games i know there was a mario film from 93 which all of a sudden people love because it's like chintzy and it's old and stuff like I that but i it. was yeah. huh i always liked it you always like well okay mike you are <laughs> significantly i'll say younger than i am i was a teenager when that movie came out, I was the prime demographic, a super, a huge Super Mario Brothers fan. I almost burned down the theater along with all my friends went to go see it. <laughs> the movie's a fucking travesty. Is anyway, it is it because this has nothing to do with the game whatsoever? And it was like some weird that's, dinosaur. That's that's a reason. Yeah. 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 I, I see. I liked how they did something different with it. And it wasn't just totally like a copy and paste here are things from the game and we're going to put it in a movie and there you go oh don't get bored don't get bored here's bowser okay don't get bored here look look he's going through the obstacle course that's kind of how i felt when i was watching mario brothers the movie like it was trying to be so much of an anti-matter to the original film that it ended up becoming more of like you're watching an extended level of the game rather than like watching a movie which I get that's kind of what they're aiming for. And that's, you know, what was great. That, that That's what the kids liked about it. But for me, I just felt like, boy, this this is just I, I could see any move. This could have been written by anyone and it would have been the same thing. But I mean, hey, well, they... but, well maybe that's the thing is, though, like in terms of you have to think about the target audience. Yeah. The target audience isn't just you know, little kids and kids who play video games. It's people who like to play Mario video games. Mm -hmm. And they're not looking for the grand big story where the expectations are subverted. You you stray down that path and you get the version from 1993, mm -hmm. which is Bowser is all of a sudden played by Dennis Hopper as a human yeah. being who sometimes becomes a lizard. The Goombas are no longer mushroom people. They're giant mutated lizards. Yeah, Mario and Luigi aren't 
like jumping through a magical land, they're using mechanical boots with springs in them. You know, it's a bunch of nonsense. What the Super Mario Brothers movie did well, and I think that the fact that it became a billion dollar movie, I mean, box office isn't everything, but it is telling. It was a worldwide pop cultural smash, I think, because it got it got it. You know, Nintendo, especially after the 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 horrifying results from 1993, they no longer allowed anybody to make their prop, their video games into movies because they're like, no, we don't trust you. So the fact that I can't, I can't even remember which studio did this. Was it Illumination? Illumination. Okay. Yeah, the, it was uh, Illumination. the Minions guys. Yeah. The Minions folks. Yeah. They came along and they said, Hey, we're going to, we have a track record of making like bizarre kind of family, silly family movies. Let's, let's do Mario. And that's exactly what they delivered. Um, I liked the simplicity of it. I felt like it, it, it built a giant runway to do more interesting things in the future, not only with Mario sequels, but with, you know, other films. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild film would be amazing. Wouldn't but it? yeah, <laughs> what, what, I mean, why not? I don't know. You just see a guy running around fighting lobsters for two hours. There's not a lot of story behind it. Like the whole Trident thing is fine, I guess. It's a MacGuffin, but I don't know. I feel like it would just drag and be boring. And I don't think Zelda is very adaptable. It's it's uh, like you'd have to have first off he what? you'd have to be more than a protagonist who's completely silent. You'd have to have a personality. So well, no, I mean, but I mean, here's that. the thing: Zelda has been adapted in comic books. In did I say Zelda? Uh, it, I meant it, Link. Is is right? But I'm uh, the, saying <laughs> the Legend of Zelda universe yeah. has been adapted in comic books. There was an animated cartoon show that ran for a while. You oh, know, I remember that a long one, time yeah. ago. That right, cartoon I mean, show made me cry as a kid. I remember that very well because there was a preview for an upcoming episode and they showed Link dying and mm. then like ran up to my grandmother's room and I'm like, they killed Link. Well, I mean, that's the thing is any video game movie yeah. for the most part boils down to what happens in the game, which is people running around on some kind of a quest, stomping, smashing, blowing things up. So it's up to the screenwriters to say, how do we make this into a story? Yeah. So I think Breath of the Wild is a visually stunning film. The game is all about like journeying, puzzles, like figuring stuff out. I think that that opens itself up to a, to a movie. But as far as Mario Brothers, the movie at hand, yeah, I think it did exactly what it needed to do. It wasn't overly complicated. It wasn't, uh, it was just like kind of a, a throwback to, you know, a regular fun kids family movie, which I think, you get a mm-hmm. few of them here and then, but yeah. Um, yeah. I think DC League of Super Pets and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yeah. um, Mutant Mayhem would fall into the, that same kind of category. Two movies I didn't expect anything of this year, mm-hmm. but I thought were really pretty spectacular in their own right. Wow. Did Super Pets come out this year? Uh, Yeah, I, I believe so. that was like in oh, wow. yeah, it was like March. It feels, it feels so long ago. It feels like it's two years long ago. Year. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. Um, man, oh man. But yeah, I mean, Mario Brothers movie, I, although it was a little too referential, it does do what the kids wanted and it does do what the adults like. But yeah, it, it made a shitload of money. So they're making sequels now. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Um, my next one is also based on a game, a game that I have never really played because honestly it was too complicated for me. I don't know what that says about me, but Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. I've heard that was a good film. I've heard it was real funny. I've seen it like is. the I've seen the m- m- meme of like Chris Pine like melting when he's playing the banjo and then coming back up. But that's like oh, oh I know. I've about only it. seen it 
I've only seen it once and I can't remember. There's a lot of weird stuff in that movie, but he's great in it. Hugh Grant, uh, you know, this has kind of been his year. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, he was the highlight of that Wonka movie. Um, and he plays the the villain in Honor Among Thieves, having a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's a fun kind of family adventure. It's very humorous. The special effects are, are pretty top notch. And you don't have to know anything about Dungeons Dragons to enjoy it. But it's really unfortunate that it failed at the box office. Because mm-hmm. at the end of that film, I'm like, okay, I'm I'm ready for another story with these characters. They're all, you know, very endearing. Again, it kind of reminded me of movies from my childhood from like the 1980s. You know, the the unlikely band of heroes who come together to fight the big bad, but they all have their own personality quirks and, uh, you know, spectacular action, and and you just want to see more of it. So yeah, D and now can't recommend it, it enough. How's it tying elements from the game to the movie where it works for the plot and all that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, that's the thing is, and that's why I said you don't have to know anything about the game to really appreciate right. the film. But I have talked to people who either are D&D players or know people who are D&D players who have seen the movie and they love it because it is very faithful I think in terms of like the quests and the items that they find and and the things that the things that things do, if that makes any sense, it all right, feels right. like it was ripped right from the pages of the of the book. Uh, they I guess the rule book. Right, um, right. Yeah. yeah. So let's see what else. Moving on, we'll call it uh, again. I'm just going whatever order. Only in theaters, a documentary in... by oh. Raphael Sabarge. Okay, um, so I have no idea what this film is, but. Go ahead. It's it's a documentary about the Lemley family, and they run the longest running chain of independent theaters in Los Angeles. Hmm. And it starts out about as a movie about this this guy Greg Lemley and his wife Tish, and they've got some uh, you know older kids who help run the theater, and they're running into this problem of oh my god. Nobody's coming to the movies anymore, especially the art house. Streaming is everything. You've got all this competition from video games and, and media. You know, are we going to be able to stay open? We've got some offers to sell the the chain as a franchise, but do we want to do it? Because you know, their family, like the Lemleys, basically started out. They helped to start the film industry. I think it was. I want to say wow. it was. I don't know if it was Paramount. That I'm. It was one of the major studios. I'm going to get this mm-hmm. wrong, but they were like instrumental in, in founding that studio. Uh, so cinema, independent cinema, especially has been in their blood. Then a little thing called COVID happens and the movie mm. takes a really different turn and you really get a look inside of what having to close a theater down during a pandemic does, you know, to the film community, to this family. And it becomes really kind of harrowing and heartbreaking but, you know, it doesn't end on a sad note because, you know, the world didn't end. <laughs> yeah. The Lemleys are still in business. And, um, yeah, it's a it's a really special, special movie. You've got a lot of, you know, interviews with people like Ava DuVernay and I think Leonard Malton was in there. Um, you know, the people who the Lemleys meant a lot to them. And when you see the films that they helped to shepherd and the filmmakers they helped to introduce to America, you're like, oh, my God, like. Sylvester Stallone was, you know, I think like 
I can't remember. There was some anecdote about how he was like trying to get this little film, people to show this little film he was working on called Rocky. And the Lemleys mm. were one of the first people to say, hey, we, we'd like to support you. Um, so, yeah, it was a uh, it's a really hell. It's a hell of a film. So definitely check it out. It's um, that's amazing because they, they because I remember we were doing our podcast during COVID about the future of movie theaters. And I think like we thought, oh, it's going to now that they removed the Paramount degree, you're going to have theaters from those companies coming out. You're going to have your Sony theater. You're going to have your Disney theater. And thankfully, that didn't happen yet. <laughs> it right. might change still. But it, it it could. But, you know, it's also a testament to the power of like the independent art house versus the multiplex. They don't get too much you know, into that. I mean, there's almost like two or three other movies you could make off of ideas that they explore in this one. Um, mm. But it really does kind of stand on its own two feet. Um, so, yeah, that's that's that one. Let's see. Scrolling through the list. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that one. Talk <laughs> to me. Talk to me, Mike. Did you that see was, Talk to Me? You know what? Yeah, I was surprised at how good it was. Have you ever seen the Rekka Rekka YouTube channel? No, I've heard it, about it, and it's amazing that these two brothers, these crazy Australians, uh, the the um, the Philippus, Danny and Michael, they mm -hmm. start off as YouTubers, and they made a horror film that like became huge. Yeah, yeah, their their YouTube channel, they basically would show stuff like Ronald McDonald would go around and get in fights with people and murder people, and that was like their videos. They did stuff like Harry Potter versus Star Wars, and they were extremely high production value. Like they would like demolish houses and have like, you know, like big explosions and they'd have people, you know, using a lot of special effects like for lightsabers and magic wands and stuff like that. It's crazy the amount of skill these guys have. And yeah, talk to me. I was really like, oh, God, is this movie going to be like made by a couple of like gamer bros and it's going to be silly? No, it wasn't. It was actually kind of like an interesting study into why we shouldn't bother the dead and how the dead end up communicating with us and what happens to our lives. And yeah, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, me too. I, I didn't know what to expect. Um, you know, Katie Glidewell, uh, she'd seen it, I think in early screening and was really talking it up. And so when I had the chance to go see it at the music box and then the Philippus were there, um, showing it, doing a Q and a afterwards, I was really excited. And I mean, it's, it's basically like a new take on the Ouija board movie, except instead of a Ouija board, it's this kind of ceramic hand that you grab onto and you say, I invite you in and talk yeah. to me. So you summon, a, you summon a spirit and then you say, talk to me. And it, it jumps into your body and communicates with the people, other people in the room while you're kind of blacked out. And then people have to un clench the hand from you after half a minute otherwise the spirit sticks around and of course the spirits stick around because this yeah. is a horror movie but it really is it's also i think it i've seen it a couple of times now the thing that's so striking is it is a horror film but it's more about like this these friend and family dynamics and it's a great i think it's solid drama anchored by wonderful performances there's um Sophia Wilde plays Mia. She's the main mm -hmm. kind of character. And she's got, you know, it's a sad story. And you understand how she gets tragically caught up in this idea of communicating with the deceased. Um, it really works. I was devastated to learn that there's a, a prequel and a sequel in the works. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, no, this we is a perfect that. standalone film. Just leave it be and, and Philippus go do something else with that immense talent. Because this is one of the most impressive debuts I've ever seen.
Well, I, I don't know if it was one of the most impressive I've ever seen, but it was pretty damn impressive. I mean, the, the way they handled death in the film is really good because they have that one kid who gets so possessed, he ends up like smashing his own face against the table, which was just, oh, I never like react when I watch scenes in movies, but I reacted to that one because I think he like tears his own eye out at one point. Tries and, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And basically, and you basically see through his family the trauma that they're going through. It's not like another horror film where it's like someone dies, okay, move on to the next scene. You actually get the actual trauma that, that a family goes through when someone is hurt or killed or something like that. And the, the, and the way they add that kind of realism to sort of the supernatural film was very impressive. Yeah. Um, like I said, I wasn't expecting it, and it delivered like on just about every level. Uh, I took my mom to see it like two weeks after I watched it and you oh, know, no. she really dug it too. No, oh, she, she, she likes horror movies. She kind of brought me up on them. So any chance I get to share something, but it's a bonding moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? Moving right along as the Muppets say, okay, another video game movie, another video game movie from a video game. This is from a video game I never played and don't intend to ever play because it's a driving game, but it's Gran Turismo. Did you oh, see yeah. this? I did see Gran Turismo. I thought it was just okay, but it was way better than Ferrari. That movie sucked. But I I didn't see Ferrari. Um, yeah, I I thought Gran Turismo was phenomenal. I've seen it twice, and both cases, or at least one of the cases, I saw it in the the Sony butt rumblers, the the big, you know, souped up audio scenes where you feel okay. every moment of the car. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, I mean David Harbor and uh, let's see. I know uh, the guy's name, Archie. It's like Adam McQuay or something. I want to say, I was, I was thinking of the other guy. I was thinking of Legolas. <laughs> no, I mean, I think all three leads Orlando in this movie. Bloom, that's it. Yeah. Yes, they they all do a, a good job. Uh, I think um, David Harbour does, you know, he's, he's, I think he's exceptional. I, I don't know if this is an award caliber thing because it's more of a low key performance, but it's a movie that you've seen probably a hundred times before it does have the unique kind of rub in that, you know, PlayStation and I guess like Sony got together and said, Hey, and, uh, along with Nissan or Nissan, as they say over in the, in the UK, <laughs> they figured, Hey, what if we gave regular video gamers, the best, the best video gamers who are, are the top at Gran Turismo, the chance to actually race race cars. Then we'll put them through this camp and we'll get them on the track. What would that look like? And it's based on a true story. Now mm -hmm. they've fudged a lot of kind of the events and the sequence of things. And, and there's, they play around with time as far as what happened in the real world. But I think it was a, a really compelling story. Um, I had heard the criticism that the main character was a bit of bit wooden. And mm -hmm. I took that in with me the first time I watched it. I'm like, no, I, I don't really see it. And I watched it the second time. Like, no, there's a lot more going on there. With the performance wooden. no well I, but that that's that's one of the things I, I had read some pieces about it because i was like on the fence like do i want to see this and i was part of it there was the morbid fascination like is this guy really as bad as i'm reading that people are saying he is and like no that i don't know what movie those folks were watching but i think the the car racing scenes are are pretty intense uh there's one car accident which both the first time uh that it happens it's you know towards the end of the film uh i literally like leapt forward my seat and like clenched my mouth in horror hmm. and i had almost a similar reaction the second time and i knew it was coming at that point yeah. um so yeah gran turismo highly recommended 
you should see Ferrari if you want to see some shocking car crashes. <laughs> I've heard that too, and I I think maybe I'll wait till next year because I'm kind of I'm full up on on my car crashes this year. <laughs> yeah, it's it's there's not much, it's it says you called it bland turismo. <laughs> and I had not I did that just for the sake I couldn't let the pun go. I have not seen it, <laughs> but you know, it's pretty yeah. accurate to the film. <laughs> it's it's Adam Driver doing another fake Italian accent which I don't know why people keep casting him in these roles where he has to play like guys from Italy. It doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it must work on some level because they keep casting him to do these bad <laughs> Italian accents. I don't know why they keep doing it. <laughs> it's a travesty. Yeah. Um, oh God. Oh, boof. Here's one that I think we talked about uh, in the con earlier, not in the context of, best films of the year but i think in relation to one of the best films mm -hmm. uh silent night the john woo movie oh, okay i did um, not see that one no it was it yeah. was good huh i was i was worried because like he kind of has a spotty record but that's mostly with his american films like paycheck and face off and stuff like that hey hey i i will not even though it's your show mike i will not tolerate <laughs> people knocking face off buddy no um i'm his face off <laughs> coming oh man two oh. two two boring actors impersonating each other in one movie <laughs> didn't you just stand up for nicholas cage like an hour ago i did anyway, but I'm... he is kind of boring in a lot of roles <laughs> look over but there. not in that one he was, he was, he was <laughs> look he was going full ham and face off but i'm not talking about that i'm talking oh, about yeah. silent night and and a fun fact uh i don't know if i ever told you i sat behind john woo at a theater once uh, he and Tom Cruise came out to, uh, to a surprise screening of Mission Impossible 2 oh, um, for an early cut. And my friend and I went to, you know, we attended and Tom Cruise brought down the house. We're like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's here. And oh, my God, he really is that short. But uh, OK, yeah, I was thought, about to ask, is he short? You could barely see him anyway. Um, <laughs> so he's my height. <laughs> But no, John Woo was sitting like two seats uh, down in front of us, and we thought MI2 was so bad that we were having to like hold it in our lap, like our uproarious yeah. laughter, like hands over the mouth. It is until, a laugh-inducing like, oh film. God. Like just I, some uh, of the fights in it, like the slow motion, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, Silent Night. <laughs> <laughs> but Silent Night, this is a good film of his. Uh, Joel Kinnaman. Uh, plays a guy who I don't know. If, I don't know if we were talking about this or I was talking with a with a friend of mine yesterday as well. A lot of talking about movies yesterday for whatever reason. But um, he plays a guy who lives in Los Angeles or L.A. suburb with his wife and his young son. Much like Face Off, it opens with his young son being uh, killed right in front of him and dying in his arms. Oh my and god! And so yeah, it, it what happens is they live in this neighborhood that's like right on the border of gang territory. There's a car chase and people like shooting automatic weapons at each other. The family's outside on Christmas Eve, just like, hey, it's Christmas Eve and we're having fun on the lawn. And huh. little boy dies. Dad. Film. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> Dad takes off running in his bad Christmas sweater, along with like the little jingle bell necklace that his son probably gave him, you know, consumed with blind rage. He's just like running after these guys on foot. Um he ends up confronting one of the gangbangers who gets the better of him and shoots him in the throat. 
like and it's a nasty this is a nasty film like it's not mm. for the squeamish but essentially the guy barely survives wakes up can't speak because his throat's been like blown all open um so the gimmick of the film if you don't know is that there's no dialogue in it it is a completely silent film except for two instances one of you hear some chatter on a police radio and the other you hear like he's driving home with his wife after getting out of the hospital and you hear like uh, the crime report on the news radio mm. other than that completely silent dialogue free and it works wow. mostly works there's a couple of scenes where you're like these two characters in the situation would have said something to each other but for the most part Wu and i can't remember who wrote it get around this by kind of having us drop into these moments where you realize oh they're not saying anything to each other because we're coming into the very end of an argument or a fight mm. when there's nothing left to say and I think it's, you know, it's kind of a beautiful bloodletting. At a certain point, it kind of becomes punishery because he like soups up a car and he dons the the black trench coat and he's like weaponing up and everything. But what I loved about it, one of the many things I loved, even besides the fact that it's beautifully pho photographed, wonderfully choreographed, is that this is he's a regular dude. He works for like the electrical company. And so when he decides to take revenge, it takes him a year to figure out how to go after these guys now his target date is yes i'm gonna go you know murder all the gangbangers on december 24th or whatever december 25th yeah. but leading up to that he's like knife training by watching youtube videos he's going out on like these little test runs to see if he can work up the courage to fight people and he keeps getting wow. his ass handed to him because he's a regular guy and even in the big mission where he's going out and and trying to take down the you know the evildoers it's not clean. It's not, this isn't like a Bruce Willis mm. where he's an ex cop or something like that. He's just, you know, he's doing the best that he can and it ends pretty much the way you might expect it to end, but it felt, you know, mm. earned and kind of sad. So yeah. Silent wow. night. Wow. That, that sounds, that sounds interesting. Like it, there's no dialogue in it. You got kind of reminds me of the artist in a way, except this yes. movie's the artist. If everyone's kicking each other's asses, I guess you <laughs> could say <laughs> pretty much. But, yeah, that's fascinating that they would do that in a film because, yeah, how do you make that work without it feeling like a gimmick? And how do you not bore the audience to tears with that? And it sounds like this movie was able to pull that off, which is very commendable. And yeah, when was the last time John Woo made a movie? Because it's been a while. Yeah. But, you know, one of the, the things I, I noticed about it or thought about after it was over was by taking out the dialogue you avoid at least one kind of annoying trope about like the 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 lone wolf action guy is there's always that moment or moments where he's all by himself but he's talking to himself i think this might have been popularized mm. in die hard you know he's like quipping or you know talking out loud in a way that you wouldn't necessarily if you're just by yourself and it's a way of just pretty much the movie avoiding voiceover <laughs> right right you know like you know it's like Oh, he's going up the stairs. Why would he go up the stairs? I gotta, I gotta do the thing. Like, no, you're thinking that you're not saying it out loud. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, that's uh that's silent night. What else we have? Um, okay, I'll go back to the obscure for I think for my last ones, or I don't even know if you would have heard of these films. Uh one is called Breaking Barriers, and it's a documentary mm -hmm. by a person that I know who i met through spotlight india 
a young filmmaker uh, named Shashwat Mukherjee. Okay. And he is a he's a student at uh, the Illinois, uh, not Illinois, sorry, India Institute of Technology, Madras, oh, and which okay. is pretty much it's like the MIT of India. That that kind of brand of of schools, these highly technical institutions, and he started a or co-founded a film society um you know, there because in in addition to being you know engineering enthusiasts and and really technically minded students yeah. they also have other interests so there's now kind of a film society film club and this documentary breaking barriers is the IIT Madras story which the kind of the institution had been known for being the best of the best like a crazy mm. small amount of people would get in you know, it's really? like a percentage of a percentage of a percentage would get in. And at some point, uh, like a few years ago, there was kind of an experiment with, for lack of a better term, like democratizing, like making, expanding the net of candidates who could, you know, apply to get in. And that's not to say that they would just let anybody in, but they would consider, you know, wider ranges of people to even give the opportunity to. And so this is about kind of that process and the results and the lives that that have changed because of that uh, that opportunity. And um, yeah, it's a it's a really special uh, documentary that you can see it on YouTube right now. I think of the IIT Madras channel. So it didn't get like a big distribution or really any kind of distribution. Oh, really? Um, right, because it's it's basically it's an independent like the independent the independentist of independent films you know they they made this documentary and they put it out on youtube for people to see um but uh, it tells a really good and i think important and, and kind of inspiring story about how you like rethinking education uh you know we talk about all the time like how how can we improve things in, in schools it really just takes you know some imagination some determination a bit of political will to really make a difference wow that sounds like a phenomenal film you know, it's another another one under my radar I haven't heard of before, but it's definitely one to check out. What's what's your next film? The next film is another one, um, and that is uh, my next film is another one. What's wrong, what's wrong with me, Mike? Um, <laughs> it's, another it's another film. Too many films. <laughs> it's another documentary by another person that I know. And people are thinking, like, is this just is Ian's top ten list just people he knows? And, you know, some of it, yeah, that's true. Um, it's called Four <laughs> Kicks. Four, Four kicks. kicks. Yes, okay. it's um, not F O U R, but F R. You know, you know, for kicks. Mm -hmm. um, it's a documentary by uh, Sean Fahey, and it is about uh, a Chicago security guard named Eugene Thomas, and he's an older gentleman, you know, kind of an unassuming but affable guy. Yeah, that Sean met. Um, you know, he's a he's a doc. Sean's a documentary filmmaker. He's made you know a handful of movies, constantly grinding and trying to like just make his living. You know, in the world of cinema, which is not you know it's it's a grind. It's not easy. So yeah, at some point during his you know working life, he met Eugene Thomas. And it turns out Eugene Thomas had sort of a secret other career as an international kung fu movie star. <laughs> uh, he. He's a he's like a tall black kung fu star from these movies from like the, the late 70s and the 80s. And for kicks is kind of about that career and what happened to him in his life, how he started off, um, you know, just wanting to learn kung fu and, and like martial arts schools in Chicago. 
uh, how he traveled abroad, just like, I'm just going to go see what it's like over in Asia and sort of stumbling into acting in movies and then getting to act in like kind of higher and higher profile movies and becoming this, yeah, this kind of cult figure and then like leaving that all behind. It's fascinating. It's fun. It's got interviews with a whole bunch of, you know, martial arts stars, great clips from these, you know, cheesy movies, but featuring incredible like not even wire work, but people doing these amazing feats of <laughs> feats of fury with their bodies. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a uh, again, it's I love documentaries that come out of left field where like mm. I had no idea this was a subculture or this existed, but there's someone passionate enough about it to to make to make you know, 80 minutes it, out yeah. of this obscure thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. So they, they're like a hidden Kung Fu society, these guys. <laughs> No, I mean, they're mostly uh, like all retired and stuff like that from the biz, but it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, and he's still, Eugene Thomas is still just doing his thing, like working, <laughs> working security. Wow. So, yeah. Um, you know. Let's see, what else? I'm trying to think, have you been keeping track of how many I have? Because I think I might have had 11, but I'm not sure. Well, I, I'm not sure. I haven't been keeping track of them all. <laughs> okay, well, and that's that's totally fine. Let's just say that my last one is going to be the last one. Okay. And that is a film. Oh, it is actually called The Last One. No, no, no. no. Um, that, yeah, that would be like The Last of Us, but that was a TV series. Yeah, that was based on a video game, and that was probably the best one. Of those, no Super Mario Brothers. We established this. No, oh, no, um, no, Castlevania. I didn't. Did they make a movie of that? Or no, it it's TV on show? Netflix, it's an animated TV show. Hmm, yeah. I never played Castlevania. I, I probably should have. I like the it's, name Simon Belmont. Yeah, Belmont, it's a whatever. it's a very grindy game. It's not like you, you pick up and play, you got to like go back, collect things, so then you could kill Dracula and. All that sort of stuff. I haven't been able to play video games in a long time because I'm kind of at that age now with video games where I just don't have the patience to play the same part again and again and again until I beat it. So I just give up on most of them while I'm playing it. Like, yeah, I got through like half a level of Super Mario Wonder. That's uh, that's about my speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I yeah. got other stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, it takes forever. Video games. They're 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 time consumers. Yeah. Um, all right. So my last movie is uh, an Indian film mm-hmm. called Jawan, which translates to soldier. And one of the things I love about living in Skokie, I mean, this is probably true of other places, too. I know they do this in the AMC downtown is AMC theaters in particular. They show like new release Indian films. And, you know, last year, my big my last film of the decade was RRR and I still mm-hmm. stand by that, but that opened me up to the world of Indian cinema and my friend Shashwat, who uh, directed um, breaking barriers, which we just talked about. He said, you got to check out Jawan because it stars his favorite actor of all time. And he's gradually becoming one of mine, a guy named Shahrukh Khan. And in this movie, he plays, well, I'll just give you the way that I encountered the movie. Initially, he plays a, terrorist who's kind of like holding this this city hostage uh in india he hijacks a train along with this group of i think five four or five you know females and they're basically plotting to extort a whole bunch of money from the government and that's that's the setup that's what the movie is initially about it becomes about five six seven other different 
things all leading off from this main premise, which turns out not even to be true. And I can't really get into much more of it because A, I saw it a few months ago and all the details are kind of fuzzy. It's kind of like RRR where it's like there's one thing and there's a million things. But also because if I were to get into those things, the entire thing would unravel and I'd give it all away. Suffice it to say, it's got some amazing action scenes. It's funny. It's terrifying. It's exhilarating. It's what's known in Indian cinema as a masala film, which basically means all the ingredients, all the different types of genres are thrown into this big pot mm. uh, to stir the emotions, and it's three hours long. <laughs> it's it's very much like it, it like an RRR type film to give you an example, but it yeah. does have its own different kind of flavor and identity. But uh, you know, Shah Rukh Khan has been described to me as sort of like India's Tom Cruise, but I mm. think he's a better actor. I think he's got more natural charisma. I've seen a few of his films now. And every time he comes on screen, I'm just, I'm impressed. I fall in love a bit and I'm a bit envious and I want to hit the gym because this guy is like cut like nobody's business. Wow. It's like the lost Van Eric, Von Eric brother. Um, but uh, no, so it's, yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to be on video or streaming anywhere. I got to see if I can find a Blu-ray because I want to see it again. It's, mm. um, yeah, Jawan. It's it's also, I, I think it's a political film, but it's sort of politically neutral in that it is about bigger themes than just kind of like left right politics it's it, the message boils down to you get the government you vote for mm. um and that might sound like how, what does that have to do with like a, a train hijacking and terrorists that's part of the the mystery of these these constantly unraveling you know revealed layers but you know it's about like arms dealing and you know corrupt government officials and where money goes to when it's supposed to go to help the poor. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful movie that is, you know, also very bloody, <laughs> mm. very romantic and very funny. So yeah, Jawan. Wow. No, wow. So well, what's it essentially about? I mean, that's, that's a set that I, again, it's hard to get into it without giving the whole thing away. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it was like, it sounds like it's a, it's, I couldn't get a clear plot from it, but I'm guessing if you tell the plot, it's one of those movies where the plot kind of ruins the film. Let's could. just say that all of the all of the people that you think are all of the villains of the movie. I almost gave something away, but all the villains of the movie, of which there are you know a handful that I mentioned that kind of take over this train as the inciting incident. They all have a backstory, and that backstory uh, is enveloped in identities that keep changing, at least in their revelations to the audience. It's very Christopher Nolan. Uh, in that way, the the way that kind of Memento starts out is like, oh, it's the guy who's lost his memory and he's trying to track down the person that killed his wife or whatever. And then by the end, you realize, oh, my God, this guy is not at all who I thought he was. Mm -hmm. Imagine that across about six characters, but handled so deftly that they must have spent 10 years writing this intricate screenplay and filming all the incredible action. And you've got Juwan. Wow. Now, you see, that that's the nice thing I've seen and noticed about Indian cinema with uh, RRR is that they don't really just play to one category. They add multiple categories and they put it into one film that makes it this sort of delicious formula that makes for incredible entertainment. You know, I mean, Indian cinema, they 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 seem to know entertainment pretty well. And it's it's, it's an avenue I don't think a lot of people explore a lot. 
you know, I think as Bollywood kind of gets this name behind it where people think it's all just corny goofball stuff. And it's more than just that. And that I, I definitely was in that boat, too. Um, but I've seen a lot of different kinds of, you know, Indian movies in this last year. Thankfully, a lot of that. And thanks to to Shashwat, because he recommends stuff I'm like I'm watching horror movies. I'm watching kind of, you know, a movie from the 1960s that's, you know, kind of beloved. And I don't know where this stereotype about like the cheesy Bollywood movie came from. Maybe they're mm -hmm. out there, but maybe it's just the American perspective of I can't accept that in the middle of this drama, people just break out singing and there's only like two songs in the movie, but it's not a musical. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right, um, right. Yeah. yeah. But And also it might just be newcomer syndrome because I swear to God, I don't think I've seen, I think I've watched like 10 Indian films of all different genres in the last year. And I haven't found one that has been less than stellar. <laughs> wow. No, that's yeah. a, I think you like their style. <laughs> I do. And that's yeah. another reason that when it comes to award season, particularly this year, I'm like, am I going to see one of these big studio movies from their independent label? That's yeah. going to be a third as interesting <laughs> as something I saw from India that came out seven years ago. And the answer is probably not. <laughs> right, right. I can understand that completely. I mean, they always say like, like Maestro is an independent film. Like that's not an independent film. <laughs> No way. You got two major movie stars in it. Like yeah, directed and starring the guy who is Rocket Raccoon in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Yeah, that's independent cinema for you. <laughs> now, wouldn't it be fun to you saw him directing? Like, they should have, like, a cartoon of Rocket directing a movie or something like that. You know, he could be he could be directing a scene from Maestro where it's like, all right, in this scene, you find out that he's gay. Now, play the... <laughs> <laughs> I, that sounds like you're describing American hustle. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, that's my, I'll call that my top 10. Thank you for listening to me ramble about a bunch of movies you haven't even heard of. <laughs> <laughs> well, give me the names of them and I can copy and paste them with a hashtag. So, okay. yeah, I could do that. But no, thank you, Ian, for coming on and doing this. We went. I went over the most stereotypical top 10 list you could think of, and Ian had something much more interesting. I mean, who would have thought that Super Mario Brothers, the movie, would be one of the best movies of the year? But according to Ian, it is, you know, Yahoo, Wahoo, yeah. Please don't let that take away from uh, you exploring some of the other movies that I mentioned Uh like I said, when I said Mario Brothers, I imagine like half the audience just dipping like, nope, <laughs> Mike got a great list. And this Ian guy, I'm out. <laughs> I don't know about that. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, Mike, he just shows everything that's already on the list. <laughs> you know, nah. you love right. what you love. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You you and, and I think, I don't know, man, if I had time to see some more Indian cinema, I should. I just ended up getting the Decalogue recently because I went to Scarecrow Video to rent movies first time watching it it's great stuff have you ever seen it it's not the one that's like 20 hours long or some nonsense it's 10 parts it was made for television so it's like 10 hours long so i got through like the first three and i'm starting the fourth one now the siskel center um are you aware of this in january i think it's in january um i think it's like the stay in or stay indoors or something like that yeah. it is marathoning movies that are like seven plus hours long i think deca wow. i think they're showing decalogue yeah over two days 
Yeah. Decalogue <laughs> is it's not like one film though. It's just a series of films right. and they're each an hour long. So, you know, you could watch one and then go the other one. You don't have to see the other one and know what what it means or anything like that. So, you can kind of come at it whatever order you want. But yeah, I'm watching in a chronological order. Apparently the first one is the best one in there and I can see why cuz Holy shit, that ending. <laughs> well, I haven't seen it, so I'll, I'll have to check it out. One of these years when I don't have nearly as much responsibility, I'm going to hit up that Siskel Center thing because that sounds amazing, probably aside yeah. from the smell. But yeah, uh, <laughs> the smell? Does it smell there? Just like, no, I'm just like saying in general, like a film festival, it's like, yeah, we're, a whole bunch of people are going to be sitting in this theater for nine hours watching one movie. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I'd that. rather just watch it at home. <laughs> and it was made for television. So, you know, that's you that too. <laughs> but Ian, thank you for doing this. And uh, folks, if you like what you see, you can always go to Ian's stuff at Kicking the Seats or that's kickseat.com. And of course, Kicking the Seat on YouTube and where, where else is that everything did i get it right pretty yeah pretty much yeah all I'm, right. I'm i'm kick seat everywhere else like you know instagram x you know facebook all that stuff to, you know kick seat is the my handle but yeah thank you mike for for having me on like i said i didn't i was kind of scrambling to come up with a list of 10 <laughs> movies that i right. dug this year because i'm like i didn't even like 10 movies but looking through my spreadsheet because yeah i'm a nerd i'm like oh i did i actually did like more than i thought so this has been yeah. a great opportunity to talk it out and to to learn from you about your preferences this is really cool yep i'm i'm a sucker for christopher nolan <laughs> i'll admit that if, if it's directed by him i love it although well no tenant sucked i don't like tenant at all yeah what happened Tenet was Tenet, lazy man. That's what, that was Christopher <laughs> Nolan being lazy. He's just like, okay, I'll just play with another movie that has something to do with time, and I'll just do another heist film. Okay, there you go. You know, and then he pushed everyone in the theater to see a movie, which you're better off watching with the subtitles on because mm -hmm. the sound mixing is just so horrible in it. And, oh, yeah, Tenant was a movie where even I, as a Nolan fan, I'm like, uh, no, this is – you have to do better than this. Like, this is too much. Like, it's just Christopher Nolan going, I know I'm smarter than you, and I'm going to tell a very simple story backwards, you know? And it's like, you've already done that. You don't need to do it again. Yeah. It was compounded for me because this was like peak COVID, so I was in the theater, like, wearing a mask during this whole thing. <laughs> like, yeah. This this is torture, and I don't know if it's the movie or the mask or both, but uh, I haven't been compelled to revisit it either way. Yeah, I'm going to have to go to a, I'm going to the music box. I know this weekend I'm going to be wearing a mask because it's a packed theater and I have to see relatives who are like in their 90s, you know, mm, <laughs> the day, yeah. you know, the few days after that, which kind of sucks. It kind of it kind of hinders the experience of enjoying a movie when you're like bit, yeah. breathing your own air into yourself. Yeah, not yeah. not fun. Yeah. But. But guys, if you like what you saw from me, you can check out all my stuff at ypareviews.com and YPA Reviews on Twitter, or I should say X, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. So having said that, I hope you guys liked our list. I hope you agreed with it. And if you're wondering what some of these movies are, feel free to check out the names and the hashtags and, you know, or listen to what we said and, and actually uh, start venturing forth and checking them out. But yeah, Ian, thanks for doing this. And folks, you'll hopefully agree with us. <laughs> All right. Yeah, thanks.